Uh, we are in week one of a new seven-week series called The Jesus Revolution and why it's really good news. That's the subtitle, and why it's really good news. Uh, I'm really excited to specifically welcome those of you in the room who are, new, who are brand new to Jesus. Like you're just like maybe someone invited you today, a friend, a colleague, someone uh, drug you here to church, and you're probably wondering why you're here, but uh, glad that you're, you're part of this. For the next seven weeks, we are on a journey to explore seven topics equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. I'll say those again. Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. I believe that each of us likes these things, these seven things, I think. I mean, I think, I believe that uh, if you asked a random Canadian whether or not they like these seven values, I think most would say yes. Most Canadians think that these seven things, or these seven values, are really good ideas. Great ideas, actually. But I'm not sure most Canadians realize where these values come from or are rooted in. I'm not sure most Canadians realize that these seven values are rooted in, inspired by, and deeply connected to Christianity, or what we're going to call the Jesus Revolution. For the next seven weeks. British author Tom Holland, and no, not Spider-Man, the other Tom Holland, <laughs> maybe not as cool, Tom Holland, uh, says the Jesus Revolution 2,000 years ago has been the most powerful and enduring revolution in history. He says this, quote, 2,020 years after the birth of Christ, we remain the children of the Christian revolution, the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in history. Now, I know that is a big claim, and one that some of you, if you are new to Jesus, you don't have to agree with me just yet. But my hope is that week after week, you and I, as we unpack these seven things, these seven values, and we follow the breadcrumbs, that if we do that, I think they will lead us to Jesus. These seven weeks are inspired by a great book that I read over the summer by an author named Glenn Scrivener, entitled The Air We Breathe. And I would encourage you to pick up a copy. And just so you know, please know this, I do not know Glenn at all. Uh, I'm sure he's a great guy, but uh, I am getting no kickbacks by endorsing his book. Just want to let you know that. It's a great book. It's called The Air We Breathe. And his argument is the same as that is of Tom Holland, that you and I, even if we don't believe in God, we cannot escape the Jesus revolution. You and I, in the Western world, by and large, believe in many of the values that come to us from the Jesus revolution. But they have become so normal to us, like the air we breathe. We take them for granted, like the air we breathe. He writes this, If you're a Westerner, whether you've stepped foot inside a church or not, whether you've clapped eyes on a Bible or not, whether you consider yourself an atheist, pagan, or Jedi Knight, you are a goldfish, and Christianity is the water in which you swim. Like the water a goldfish swims in, we take our belief in the te teachings of Jesus for granted. It's just normal to us. We almost don't even notice it, right? So will you join me for these seven weeks as we follow the breadcrumbs to find the source for these values 
that we hold so dear. Today, we begin with equality. Equality. So let's start with some Dr. Seuss. In his book, Horton Hears a Who, we read these words. A person's a person no matter how small. A person's a person no matter how small. Do you believe that? That every person, no matter how young, poor, sick, marginalized, or oppressed, that every person matters. If you believe that, then I believe that you believe in one of the most foundational beliefs in the Bible. As I begin, I want to tell you a story of a little girl named Sheila. Sheila. The Indian Christian philosopher Vishal Mangalwadi, in his book, The Book That Shaped Our, Your World, tells the heartbreaking story of a little girl in his hometown in India named Sheila. Vishal's wife, Ruth, met little Sheila, a tiny 18-month-old girl who was dying in her home of malnourishment. Vishal writes about the encounter that his wife, Ruth, had with this little girl. And he says this, In the middle of a windowless, dingy room, an 18-month-old living skeleton was lying on a bare string cot, pus oozing from sores covering her body and head, with flies swarming over her because she could not raise her hand to chase them away. Her thighs were only as thick as an adult's thumb. Sheila was so weak that she could not even cry. She only sighed. So Ruth uh, went to the parents and questioned the parents about why they hadn't taken little Sheila to the hospital yet. The parents had all kinds of excuses. No money, no time. They actually had three other children that they needed to look after. So Ruth was so frustrated. So she asked her husband Vishal, the author of the book, Vishal to come and to talk to the father, to basically beg this father to do something. The Mangalwadis promised that they would fully pay for Sheila's medical bills at the hospital. They would even pay for workers to come take the place of the father's job so that he wouldn't lose business while he went to the hospital with his daughter. But it was like to no avail. They would not send their daughter to get medical treatment. Simply put, the parents did not find their little daughter worth it. They didn't find saving their daughter worth it. Vishal and Ruth were so frustrated, frustrated that they got to the point where they threatened to call the police. That if, they, if, if, if Sheila doesn't go to the hospital, we will call the police. So the parents finally let Vishal and Ruth take the little girl to the hospital, and she got better in the hospital. She got nutrients back in her body. She began to recover, and the Mangalwadis took her to their home to care for her. But after a period of time, the parents came to take her back to her home in fear that, if she, that she would convert to Christianity if she stayed in the Mangalwadis' home. And the process began again. She went home. She got malnourished again. She started starving again. And Vishal and Ruth again took her to the hospital, then took her back to their place. So she, they, she got care. And the parents came once again and took her home. And this time, she died. She died. This precious little girl passed away in her home. And when I read that story, I was like, what a horror. How could two parents let their daughters suffer and die like that? 
Well, Vishal Mangalwadi from India started to explain the worldview that these neighbors were trapped in. Sheila's parents were trapped in a Hindu worldview, and, and Mangalwadi explains. He says, quote, the parents knew that Sheila's life as an unwanted girl in their caste and culture was going to be especially miserable. Her future was doomed to be dark. Therefore, out of their deep compassion for her, they shortened her suffering. Sheila's parents believed that, like themselves, Sheila was trapped inescapably in the clutches of poverty. They held to traditional Hindu fatalism. They did not believe that they could change history, that they could transcend fate and karma, nature and culture. Thus, our conflict was not merely over ethical principles, it was a clash of worldviews. You see, in Hinduism, each life is a soul that gets reborn into a new form. But that form depends on how virtuous you were in your past life. Good or bad karma is like good or bad fortune based on your actions. Karma implies that the pain that you have right now, the suffering that you're going through right now, or the poverty you currently live in is your own fault. In a previous life, you behaved poorly. So whether it's in this life or a past life, you are to blame. You're getting what you deserve. So, but think about the implications of this. If anyone is sick, in poverty, suffering, has a disability, or is living in miserable conditions, the message of karma is clear. You did it to yourself. You did this to yourself. So karma is incredibly cruel. Now back to Sheila. If this is karma at work, then why should someone fight for her? Right? She is just living in her own little 18-month-old frail body, the repercussions of a past life. But deep down, I mean, let's get honest, deep down, you and I, in our gut, it's like we know this isn't right. Why? Why are we horrified? Why are we filled with outrage when we hear a story like this? Because you and I are breathing a different air or swimming in different waters, right? We have come to follow a different worldview, a worldview that says all human beings are created equal. We are made equal in the eyes of God, which means that each one of us in the room has dignity and value. Much of Western civilization is banking on this worldview. Now, we like to attack our Western civilization for good reasons, right? Lots of errors have been done, horrible sins, right? But much of Western civilization is banking on what we're going to argue today is a Christian worldview. So where do we get this worldview that all people are created equal? Well, I believe that we receive that from Genesis chapter 1, on the very first, first page of the Bible. If you were to just open up your Bible, right there, there it is, Genesis chapter 1. We read this, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we run into this concept called the image of God, or in Latin, it's the imago Dei. 
The Bible is 100% clear that every human being is made in the image of God. Both male and female are image bearers of God. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because this gives every human being dignity and value. We are different than the rest of the created world. We are image bearers of God. And like a parent and a child, we are a reflection of our parent, our heavenly parent. We have value and dignity simply by being human. Now, just so you know, this truth should have been enough truth to have kept Christian slave owners from owning slaves, Christian crusaders from their violence, and Christians from participating in Holocaust genocides and residential schools. Any Christian who has participated in these horrific acts are just not reading their Bibles correctly. The image of God in Genesis 1 gives every single human being dignity. And Jesus lived out that Genesis 1 principle out of equality everywhere he went. I wish I had time to, to say a lot more about Jesus, but let me just give you a few examples about, of how his life modeled a vision for equality. Some of you remember the story when Jesus approaches a woman at a well. She's marginalized. She has to go to this well at a time of day where she's not going to run into other people. She's been pushed to the edges of her community. And yet he valued her and saw her as an equal. He spoke to this woman about the heart of worship. He did not speak down to her. There was no patronizing there. He cared for her. He entrusted much to her. In another story, Jesus travels over the sea to liberate a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, a, a Gentile from, uh, from absolute uh, marginalization in his community as well. Seriously struggling in chains with deep mental health issues and a whole lot of dark spiritual things as well, Jesus comes and sets this man free out of deep love for him. He was a human being that deserved uh, the love of God and freedom. Then Jesus spends, in another story, focused time with a woman who had been bleeding for years. She, too, was cut off from her community, and she needed help, and Jesus gives her healing and help. Then Jesus spends time loving children, welcoming, welcoming them into his circle, lifting up children and calling them equals. Jesus spends time with lepers and giving them tons of dignity as they were pushed to the edge of, of their culture. Jesus loved, everywhere he went, he loved the poor, the sick, the sinner, the outcast, and the lonely. It's like everywhere he goes, it's like just a pocket of that Genesis 1 vision of equality. Every human being mattered to Jesus. And he's, there's like no patronizing, as I said a moment ago. He doesn't look down on anybody, right? He looks at them and sees them for who they are, image bearers of God. Richard Hayes from Duke Divinity School says this, Jesus, a small town Jewish teacher executed by Roman officials as a troublemaker, continues after 2,000 years to vex our consciences, inspire actions of grace and mercy, and elude our categories. Now, after Jesus died and rose again, his followers then took what they saw in Jesus and lived out a revolution of equality. They lived it out. Starting in the city of Jerusalem, they began to spread all over the Mediterranean and then all over the world. And in general, they were obviously not like Jesus, not perfect, but the early church in general lived out this vision of equality, right? They were not perfect, but 
in history, in, in what we have of recorded history, we see that followers of Jesus cared about people equally, whether rich or poor. They, they treated women with dignity. They were a very multicultural group of believers. And in a world of patriarchal hierarchy, they were saying things like this in the Bible. Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Meaning, you can follow Jesus no matter who you are. Each of you, no matter who you are, you have access to the love and the freedom and the life of Jesus. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a slave or free, male or female, you are all one in Christ. And during this time in history, this would have shattered the inequality many people were living in in the Roman Empire. And 300 years later, 300 years later, this Jesus revolution became the face of the Roman Empire. It was too attractive for people. People were drawn to this vision of equality. And the influence of the Bible of Jesus and his followers, and of their teaching on equality just cannot be quantified. It has changed Western civilization. So much so that you and I think that equality now is self-evident, that it's common sense. And some of you already have been probably reacting that way to what I've been, I'm saying. They're like, well, it's, it's common sense, right? Like, if I were to ask you, how do you know that every human being has equal value and dignity? You'd probably say something like, Common sense, <laughs> like this is not rocket science, you know, common sense, isn't it obvious? Well, I just wanna tell you, I'm really glad it's obvious to you. I'm really glad, that's a, that's a, I think that's a gift to you from the Jesus revolution. But unfortunately, world history shows us that it is not obvious. Plenty of people have used their common sense, the kind of the way they saw the world, to argue for the inferiority of women that slaves are subhuman, that Jews are subhuman, that Tutsis in Rwanda are subhuman, that the untouchable class, the Dalits of India are subhuman, that our First Nations neighbors are subhuman. I just don't think it's as clear as you and I would like, it to, like to think. Now, just so you know, I'm a dual citizen and all my family's in the United States, so I think I have the right to say what I'm about to say about the beautiful land of the United States that I love dearly, but let me pick, pick, pick on them for a second. Let me say this, it wasn't clear enough or common sense enough for the very people that wrote the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Signed July 4th, 1776, the U.S. Declaration of Independence says, quote, we hold these truths to be, what? Self-evident that all men, uh, there might be a clue there, men, are created equal, uh, where it starts to go wrong, uh, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, just so you know, I'm not trying to like beat up on that. I, like, I, 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 I think this is important. This is true. This is really true. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Okay, but let me just say, self-evident, really? <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, who penned these words, owned slaves at his home in Monticello. So apparently not self-evident enough, right? See, my point is this. Without total trust in Genesis chapter 1 and the doctrine of the image of God, we start to do stuff like that. We say with our words, all human beings are equal. 
but we behave in ways that are contrary to that truth. Now, let me just play the cynic for a second, if I could. Are humans truly equal? Really? <laughs> really. When we look around us, do we not see lots of people that are quite unequal in appearance, talent, and capabilities? Let me ask, where do you see equality in human beings? You might say it's natural, it's in the natural world, it's common sense, but where do you actually see it in human beings? How do you know that they're equal? If you were going to try to prove that to me through the natural world, how would you know that? How is it self-evident? Can you prove it? Can you show me? Let me do a thought experiment for a second. Take any two people that you know, any two people, and one of the two of them will be way better at Jeopardy than the other, right? Not equal, not equal. One of them will run faster than the other, right? One will be able to lift more than the other. One will be able to empathize more than the other. One will be taller. One will be wider. One might be more attractive at a superficial level, of course, right? <laughs> and by the way, that changes throughout history, right? Like, but one might, be, one might be more attractive. One, one person's heart might be better than the others. Their lungs, eyesight, hearing ability, sense of balance might be better than the other. I could like go on and on and on. No two persons are equal when we measure health, capabilities, talents, and appearance. They're just not equal. So Glenn Scrivener writes this, quote, compare any two people concerning any one attribute and what will you conclude? This one has more than that one. This, of course, is the definition of unequal. To insist that two people are equal, really, when every human trait betrays inequality, raises the question, equal how? Where is this magical realm of their, where their equality exists? Can you show it to me? Now, obviously, he's being provocative, right? He believes in the equality found in Genesis 1. But you see, if we just had common sense or the natural world, where do you ground? It's a real question. It's a real question. Where do you ground your belief that every human being has equal value? All right. Well, if we can't find it really in the natural world, maybe we find it in the ancient world. <laughs> okay. Pr yeah, probably not. But anyway, let's, 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 let's test this. Let's test it out for a second. Okay. The ancient world. The ancient world apparently did not understand justice the way we do today. This is really interesting. They don't understand justice the same way. In the Greco-Roman world, justice was not a fight for equality. It was the enforcement of the superior ruling over the inferior. Okay, so it's, 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 it, would, it would be unjust for, for the inferior to start, you know, speaking on an equal level to their superiors, right? So you gotta maintain justice, right? Uh, here's Plato. Just listen to Plato. He says this, nature herself intimates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. Thank you, Plato. Right. Did you hear that? For Plato, justice is when the hierarchy of society gets all out of whack. Or sorry, injustice is when the hierarchy of society gets all out of whack, right? But justice is when the hierarchy remains in place, when men rule over women and slaves. 
right? So this is common sense. He thinks that that's what nature teaches, right? Men should rule over women and slaves. I mean, this is common sense. We see it in nature, right? And which leads Glenn Scrivener to conclude, we consider justice to mean the equalizing of persons. The classical world considered justice as the enforcement of inequality. That was what nature intended. So justice is to keep women and slaves at the bottom of the heap and wealthy men at the top, the superior ruling over the inferior. It's what nature intended. So here's the deal. I don't believe that we find equality in the natural world. It's not actually common sense to our own eyes. I don't think we find equality in the ancient world. Could it be that you and I believe in equality because so much of the Western world has been profoundly influenced by the Bible, by the words of Genesis 1, and by the people who have lived out that belief, aka the Jesus revolution? Are you with me? I went to Northern Ireland this summer, and my good friend uh, is married uh, to a lady from Northern Ireland, and her father, I was chatting with him, and he loved that expression. Matthew, are you with me? <laughs> and he's telling me a story, and he's like, Matthew, you with me? I'm like, I'm, I'm totally with you. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, so I just have that in my mind. Are you with me? See, without this belief in equality, you and I begin to argue for destructive ways of viewing people. One view, whether or not uh, you know, people have value, is held by Peter Singer. Some of you may know that name, Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He argues that humans have worth as it relates to their capacities or capabilities. And what he means is this, the more you contribute to the world, the more value you have. And just so you know, before we start judging Peter Singer, he's really trying to find out how people have value. Like, what does that even mean, you know? So he, he finds that people's value is rooted in their capacities. So, so the less you contribute, the less value you have in the world. In 1979, he wrote this. He said, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Right, yeah, so we feel it, right? And we're like, okay, so Peter Singer is arguing that babies, because they're not self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time, so they have less value than a dog, a pig, or a chimpanzee. Now, you and I in our gut are like, no, that doesn't sound right. You're, you teach at Princeton, but I think you're wrong, right? Uh, that book came out from Cambridge University Press or whatever, but you're wrong. Uh, you know, we just feel that, right? You felt it when I read that. So Christianity has given the world a great gift. Humans have value and dignity because they're made in the image of God. And that value has nothing to do with whether or not someone contributes, quote unquote, to society or not. Simply by being human, they have dignity and value. My friend Andrew said it this way. He said, this should bring us great freedom. We can never age out of dignity or be too sick to have dignity. I love that. You can't age out of this. You have value and dignity. I wish I could look at all your eyes right now. Each of you has value and dignity. You matter. So if you don't like what Peter Singer is arguing, it might be your Christianity talking. 
you might be more influenced by the Jesus revolution than you think. You may be, I know this sounds crazy, already be placing your faith in the teachings of Genesis chapter 1. Let's think about Canada for a second. This next weekend, we have the opportunity to remember um, our First Nations neighbors and what they have been going through in the last number of years. And we are growing more and more horrified by the story of the residential schools as it comes to light. Many of us are learning for the first time. I know it's me. I'm learning for the first time of some of the horrors of, of what took place. Those who profess to be, you know, we can talk about the government, uh, but we, those who profess to be Christians uh, ran those schools. And maybe as I've been talking up here, you're, you're going, okay, equality sounds great, Christians, but like, weren't you guys at the heart of residential schools? Those who professed to be Christians, to follow Jesus, ran these schools. And it is just a dark stain upon the story of Christianity and what Jesus wants to do in Canada and his teaching on equality, right? It is so wrong, period. Period, right? It's sin. And can I also say that it is the Jesus revolution that gives you your outrage. It's the Jesus revolution that gives you your outrage. Followers of Jesus are anchored in the truth of the scriptures that say that every human being matters, that children matter, that all people are created equal. So, so what is it that bubbles up inside of you? What is it that just fills you with that righteous anger? It's, it's the Jesus revolution that gives you that outrage where we say that's wrong. Can I just ask you, in the ancient Roman world, would there be outrage over residential schools? No, no. Did the empire feel the need to enter into truth and reconciliation with the peoples that they conquered? No, right? Do we think atheist communists or atheist fascist regimes of the 20th century, like the Third Reich or Chairman Mao Zedong's China or Stalin's Russia were thinking about reconciliation? No. Do we think that right now, in India, that Hindu theology is leading to the liberation of the Dalit people, the untouchables? No. Does the survival of the fittest, quote unquote, principle where big fish eat the little fish, does that give us our compassion for, the, for First Nations children? No. No. The ancient world and many modern ways of viewing the world would find that what the Canadian government did alongside Christian people what happened to the First Nations children was simply another day at the office. The Caesars of Rome wouldn't find this even a topic for discussion, right? You're taking a holiday to remember what? No, it's might. Might is right, right? It's not even a topic for discussion amongst the Caesars. So here's the deal. I believe that the outrage you and I feel when we see beautiful First Nations children oppressed by the church and government, that that outrage comes from the air you breathe. You have been breathing the air of the Jesus revolution and the teaching that every human being, every First Nations child is made in the image of God, that each of them are precious in the eyes of God. Each of them are a work of art from the creator. When we say every child matters, we believe that because God made them and they are his precious works of art. That cannot be proven in the natural world, I don't think. That is a belief. You believe that. 
I believe that. We are putting our faith in Genesis 1, that God created mankind in his own image. So these beautiful First Nations children stand as equals in society. Sheila matters. Locally, right here, our Katsi and Kwantlen children matter. A person is a person, no matter how small. Now, let me just say this really clearly. If you believe that Sheila's life was worth saving, if you believe that a person is a person, no matter how small, if you believe that people are to be loved, valued, and given dignity, I think you will love Jesus. I think you are closer to belief than you might think. And for those of us in the room who claim to follow Jesus, it's worth asking, right? How are you and I living in a way that makes that truth a reality? Jesus followers, are you and I living in a way where we are treating people equally, giving them value and dignity no matter who they are, no matter how much we might disagree with them, right? Are we doing that? Are we living in a way, and do our words dehumanize others? How are we part of practices that encourage the unequal treatment of people? Do we care about that? See, the Jesus revolution means something has to change in Matthew, right? How do I treat the cashier, the server, those in the service industry? How do I treat people across the globe who made this shirt? How do I think about those things? How do I treat them the same on equal, equal value, right? These are questions that you and I, if we're Christians, we've really got to wrestle with this, right? I want to let you know, uh, there was way too much to put into this sermon today. So if you want to keep the dialogue going or be part of an ongoing conversation, two quick things. First of all, um, uh, Corey, our worship pastor, and I do a little podcast together. It's called the After Sunday Podcast. I'm going to talk about a lot of stuff that I wasn't able to put into this. And so we have a dialogue. Um, uh, we record them on Mondays, and so it should be kind of released on Wednesday. So just, you know, that's a, that we're going to keep dialoguing a bit more. Um, I would love, if you are new to Jesus... If you would like to email me, my email's on the website, I would love to hear from you. If you've got questions, if you're like, you hated every word I said, that's totally fine. Email me, I'd love to chat. I'd love to talk a little bit more. I'm just really grateful you're here. If you're a Christian and you didn't like my sermon, I don't wanna hear from you at all. Like, don't send me an email. This is not about you. It's not about you. So anyway, uh, I wanna save my time to respond to people that, that, that are actually interested. Um, and so, so, also, if, if you are new to Jesus, we, we're starting a course this Wednesday, and it's called Alpha, and it's eight weeks on um, introducing people to Jesus. It's kind of the basics of, of Christianity, and someone who brought you here today might be able to tell you more about Alpha, um, but my wife and I, we love Alpha. We'll be there, great meal, and we just explore the basics of Christianity, so we'd love to have you there. Um, and one final thing, uh, our prayer team is here today, and I just love our prayer team. And if you are new to church, just so you know, we have this prayer team because we really believe that God is here and that we can have a beautiful encounter with the living God in prayer. So if you have anything that you need prayer for, anything at all, just come to our prayer team. Some of them will be standing up front. Uh, we have our prayer room in the back. You can go to receive prayer. But we just love prayer here, and, uh, and if you'd like to take advantage of that, someone would love to pray for you. Let me end the whole thing by saying this. I want to ask you a question. How, how, how is something valued? How are things valued? 
I want to show you the image of the, the Mona Lisa. And if you've been at North Langley, I've used this image before, but uh, there she is. Um, and uh, I don't really like the Mona Lisa. Okay, first of all, I come from a family of artists. I love paintings. I've never been drawn to the Mona Lisa. Like, I just, the, the, I don't know, the background seems like she's walking through, like, uh, you know, some land of death or something like that. It's just a crazy picture. But I feel like it's a little creepy, the, the, the picture. And so I'm not, I'm not sure if any of you feel that way, but like, I'm like, how is this valued at such a high uh, amount? So I did some research. In 1962, um, the Mona Lisa was valued at 100 million US dollars. Today, take inflation into account, the 1962 value is estimated to be about $780 million. But one estimate I read from the UK is that it could be valued at $1.6 billion. Can you imagine? $1.6 billion. Okay, so how are paintings valued? Well, very simple. Whatever someone is willing to pay for it. Right? That's it. How do you value a painting? Whatever someone's willing to pay for it. What's the world willing to pay for the art? Well, that's its value. That's why some of you are like, I've never understood why a big red ball in the middle of a field is called modern art. Who would buy that? And it's like, somebody bought it, so that's its value. <laughs> a big red ball in a field. And here's what I want to say. When we look at the cross of Jesus, when we see Jesus with his arms outstretched, dying for the world, for every human being, he paid an incredible price. Now, calculate the value of all humanity. No matter who you are or what your life looks like, Jesus paid the ultimate price with his very life, shedding his own blood so that he could have you, so that you could have his life and his grace and his freedom and his forgiveness, all of it. He paid that price for you. He sacrificed his life for you. That's how valuable you are. You want to know how valuable, valuable you are? It's what somebody is willing to pay to have you, to love you, and to give you life. See, to Jesus, it was worth paying everything to have you. Can we stand together? We're going to continue in worship. But I end with this. If you have faith that equality is real, would you follow the breadcrumbs? I believe that they'll lead you to God. If you have faith that equality is real, I think you will really, really love Jesus. And that's my hope for the next seven weeks. Will you join us next week as we talk about compassion? God, we are so grateful that you have called us um, little image bearers of you. What incredible dignity you've given us. And we're so grateful. Would you show us how to treat those around us, everyone around us, with that same dignity, with that same love? And Lord, we are so grateful for the cross. We're so grateful for paying the ultimate price um, for us. And we love you. Amen.